Well, good, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Medical Detectives Lecture Series. This is our second series of these, our second season of these highly successful talks for the public. I'm Jonathan Seckel. I'm uh, the lucky guy who's Dean of the College of Medicine and Veterinary Medicine at the moment, although I very much expect to be sacked almost immediately. And uh, I think this is a, a splendid opportunity for, for people to see how medicine works in practice and what a wonderful and exciting subject it can be. I'm particularly delighted to see so many young people. I hope some of you are from high schools and are thinking of doing medicine or veterinary medicine and might get inspired by what we do. I hope that works out for you. I'm also delighted to see so many members of the public rather than just, uh, just colleagues here. And again, I hope it gives you an illustration of what we're up to. These are very much named after Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle was a medical student here in Edinburgh. He was born in 1859, which was the year that uh, another famous medical student from Edinburgh, Charles Darwin, published his great book on the origin of species. Actually, Charles Darwin didn't last terribly long in Edinburgh. He was rather put off by anatomy. He didn't learn in, 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 in this space although there would have been anatomical dissections here. He learnt in the, in the old medical school, but we think that Conan Doyle did, because he was a medical student here um, in uh, 1876 to 81, and this building was built three years before that. So it's very likely that one of you is sitting where Conan Doyle doodled or began to sketch out his ideas for his great fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes. So think about that while you're listening. Anyway, today's lecture is uh, given by Professor Jane Norman. Jane's a, a spectacular uh, academic obstetrician. Um, she's a fantastic role model, particularly for young women, to see how high nowadays you can rise through the medical profession to the very top. Jane qualified, trained and qualified in Edinburgh and then held a series of posts around the Scottish arena and went to Glasgow as a young academic, rising through to a personal chair in obstetrics and gynaecology there. And then she had the Regis chair of obstetrics and gynaecology. And a couple of years ago, we were able to entice her across here to Edinburgh to another chair. So she's had now several chairs. I think my wife would say that it's time to get a table. <laughs> and you'll have the complete dining set. She's Professor of Maternal and Fetal Health here and also Director of the Tommy's Centre for Maternal and Fetal Health. Jane's had a very strong career sorting out the problems of childbirth and premature labour. She's a real world expert, so we're very fortunate to be able to listen to her thoughts. And her title today are The Mysteries of Birth. Far from elementary, my dear Watson. Jane. Jonathan for that very kind introduction. It's a real uh, pleasure and a privilege for me to be able to talk to you today and thank you very much everybody for, for coming. So I thought I would start by showing a picture of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle after who, whom these uh, lecture series are mentioned. Um, as we've heard um, Conan Doyle was a graduate of Edinburgh Medical School um, but he became more famous I guess as a writer of crime novels with of course his famous hero being Sherlock Holmes 
who seemed to solve many crimes effortlessly and describing the solution as elementary, my dear Watson. So I'm going to try and argue to you today that the process of birth is perhaps the greatest mystery story of all time, and that in contrast from to the conundrums faced by Sherlock Holmes, solving the mystery of birth and its associated problems is far from elementary. So the process of birth is shown on this uh, video, and it's pretty obvious what's triggered the birth of this baby, here being delivered by elective caesarean section, but for the majority of us who are born as a result of spontaneous labor leading to vaginal delivery, the process of labor still in 2010 is not really understood. We have some understanding of the clinical process that's been studied for centuries, and this is um, a picture of a textbook for midwives from uh, 1513. And the clinical processes they describe are pretty much the ones we understand today. So labor involves changing of the cervix or the neck of the womb. The consistency of this, this um, structure has to change. And it has to become soft so that the contractions of the womb, the muscular part of the womb, can open uh, the neck of the womb and allow the baby through. During the process of labor, the neck of the womb is open completely, a process called cervical dilatation. The baby's delivered, and then after that, if all goes well, the uh, placenta is delivered. So we kind of know what happens clinically, um, and as I say, this has been studied for centuries, but we don't really have a good understanding of the biochemical processes that are involved. Uh, and we certainly have no understanding of what particular things trigger off labor. And this means it's quite difficult for us to intervene when labor goes wrong. It's quite difficult for us to start labor effectively, and it's almost impossible for us to stop labor when it happens in the, in the wrong time, at the wrong time. So we have some clues about the process of labor. We know that hormones are important, uh, and they can be hormones from the baby, here from the pituitary gland in the brain of the baby, here from the adrenal glands, the sort of stress glands of the baby, or it can come from the mum. And oxytocin is a hormone you may have heard of, which is important of labor in labor, and it's again made by the mum's brain here. And then the baby itself is important, and the, the placenta, which uh, supports the baby during pregnancy and the fetal membranes, may also be important. So you can see some of these factors interacting here, but this is only a very basic diagram, and certainly all the factors are not on this diagram. And if you tried to find a starting point here, you would look in vain, because we don't understand what the single trigger to labor is, and perhaps it's because there is not one single trigger. So we don't really understand what starts off labor. We do have a rough idea of how long pregnancy should last. So as every woman in the audience who's ever been pregnant will be able to tell you exactly how long pregnancies last, because she's probably counted every single day. Um, and most of us are born around our due date, which is at the end of nine months of pregnancy or 280 days of pregnancy. But as doctors and midwives, we would consider anything between 259 and 294 days as being about right. Now, I'm going to ask you a little question now. I suspect you all get the answer to this. Human pregnancy is nine months long, but it's not the longest mammalian pregnancy. So can anybody tell me which animal has the longest mammalian pregnancy? Puts the nine months to, to shame, really. It's much longer than nine months. 
Elephant, very good. So elephants have the longest mammalian pregnancy, so um, I guess any pregnant woman at eight months who's feeling rather disgruntled with life should be glad that she's perhaps not an elephant when she would have another 14 months to go. So this is pregnancy in the African elephant, and these are elephant um, fetuses in the womb here at uh, six months here and 12 months here. And as I say, uh, even at this stage, there's still another uh, 10 months to go. We differ from animals. In animals, the timing of pregnancy is very tightly regulated. So animals uh, are pretty good at delivering pretty much about the time that they're due. Humans are not very good at delivering about the time they're due. And this causes quite a lot of problems for human pregnancy. And we're one of the few animals to have a major problem of preterm birth. So this is a preterm baby here. And you can see that it's perhaps smaller than you would expect. It's thinner than you would expect, and if you were able to, to look inside, you would see that its organs are not uh, very well developed. So preterm birth is a problem all around the world. This is a picture from the March of Dimes Foundation in the US, which uh, in, investigates this, and they show the prevalence of preterm birth in various places of the world. And you can see that in developed countries where you think we would have sorted this out by now, in the States, for instance, the prevalence of preterm birth is around 12%. Uh, it's similar in Africa. Um, and in Britain here, the prevalence of preterm birth in Britain and Scotland is 7%. So seven out of every 100 babies in Scotland are born too early. And not only is preterm birth common around the world, but rather worryingly, it's increasing. So one of the great things about Scotland is we've got really good databases and really good information on, on health in Scotland. Um, so we're able to look at changes in preterm birth over time. And in collaboration with uh, colleagues in the Information Services Division in NHS Scotland, we've plotted preterm birth rates over time in Scotland over the last 25 years. And you can see that during this time, as we've got uh, generally healthier and wealthier and had uh, better almost everything, preterm birth rates have increased. It's not clear why this has happened. We know that women who have twin and triplet pregnancy are more likely to have preterm birth, and we know that twin and triplet pregnancy has increased during this time. But even if you adjust for this, preterm birth rates are still rising. We also know that women are getting older when they have their first child, or their average age of having a baby is increasing. And we know that the older you are, the, again, the more likely you are to have a preterm birth. But again, even if you adjust for this, rates of preterm birth are increasing in Scotland. So this is a bit of a worry for us. It's a bit of a worry for the Americans because it's happening to them as well. And it's a worry for the Europeans because it's happening to them as well. And we need to try and, and understand this a little bit better. So if we're going to think about preterm birth, we need to think about what causes preterm birth. And there are two major types of preterm delivery. Around 25% of babies born preterm are born as a result of this particular individual, or rather him and his colleagues, who these days are more likely to be female, I guess. So 25% of babies born preterm are born because a doctor or a midwife looking after the woman um, is aware that the woman or the baby is unwell and feels that it would be better for the, uh, either the mother or the baby if the baby was delivered early. Now, the rates of preterm birth for this cause have been increasing, but we have some good evidence that actually, over time, babies born um, as a result of deliberate preterm birth are doing better. So it looks as if the decision-making around this is correct, 
and that perhaps we shouldn't try too hard to prevent these particular preterm births. But the majority of preterm births are in this other part of the pie, pie chart, so 75% of preterm births are just normal labor that happens too early in the pregnancy. There's no obvious problem with the pregnancy. The mum appears to be well and the baby appears to be well. But for some reason, women just come into hospital and deliver too early. Now, if you're a regular reader of the newspapers, you would th probably think, well, that's not really a problem, is it? Because the, um, the information that the media gives you about preterm birth is often one as a good news story, and, and it's, a, it's a regular filler in, in um, papers such as The Sun here. So this is uh, a typical story. This is baby Eva, born at 23 weeks of pregnancy, so just uh, shortly after her mother's halfway point of pregnancy. The baby has, uh, uh, is uh, red and wrinkly because her skin is thin. Um, she has a breathing tube to help her breathe because her lungs are not developed properly, so uh, she's having to have quite a considerable amount of help with breathing. And she's not very good at maintaining her temperature, so she tends to get cold, so she's got this uh, nice woolly hat on here. And if you read these sort of stories in the paper, they're always accompanied by a picture of a thriving baby once it's left the special care unit uh, sometime later. Uh, and it's often accompanied by a strap line saying this sort of thing, so tests have confirmed that Eva is developing just like any other baby. And this is a great story for Eva, and it's great for her mum, but this is not the reality for most babies born at this sort of uh, stage of pregnancy that Eva was born. So these are data from England and Wales now, and you can plot um, the number of weeks of pregnancy here, which we call gestational age, against the chance of the baby dying on this axis. And this uh, light gray um, part of the graph here shows babies that die within the first week of life. This um, paler gray here shows babies dying before the first month of life. And then this final dark gray here shows babies dying uh, by the end of the first year of life. And you can see that baby Eva here, born at 23 weeks, if you go up, you can see that she had a 90% chance of dying uh, before the end of her first week of life. So to survive, she was actually very lucky. And you can see that as you're born slightly later preterm, the risk of dying decreases quite significantly. And then if you're born at term, the chance of survival is really pretty good. So these are babies who die. And we know that for babies who survive, the outcome is not always good. So for babies born before 26 weeks of pregnancy, around a quarter will have a major handicap, such as cerebral palsy. And increasingly now, we appreciate that babies who even are born at these slightly later gestations here and survive, when you look at them, actually they have some subtle um, effects of preterm birth. So that again, if you plot gestational age at birth here against cognitive test score, which is kind of like an IQ score here, you can see the older you were at birth, the smarter you're likely to be according to this. The same is also true of birth weight here, so you can plot your own birth weight here against cognitive test score. My birth weight was 2.2 kilos, so according to this, I'm not particularly smart. I perhaps shouldn't say this with my <laughs> boss in the audience here. Um, but clearly, if you're born preterm, even if you're born marginally preterm, you're probably not going to achieve the potential you would otherwise achieve. So what about treatments for preterm labor? There's two real ways that we can treat preterm labor. 
One is we can wait till women develop signs and symptoms of preterm labor till they develop these contractions and think, ah, let's see if we can try and stop them. And one is to try and identify women early in pregnancy who are at risk of preterm birth and try and treat them before they go into labor. So I've got another quiz coming up now. So which of these two particular treatments has been used to treat preterm labor? So which of these two particular treatments has been used in Scotland to treat women who come in with some contractions of the womb? And your options are alcohol, a popular medication, and the other option is nifedipine, which is a drug that we use to treat high blood pressure. So any takers for the alcohol? One, two. Any takers for the high blood pressure tablets? A few. Well, anybody who put their hand up was right because both of these um, treatments have been used to try and stop the womb contracting, and they both are quite effective in the short term. But none of them is effective for long enough to prevent the baby being born uh, preterm. So in, in the hospital I work in, we don't use any of these treatments because neither of them are sufficiently effective. And alcohol, as you can imagine, is associated with quite significant side effects. Although 20, 30 years ago, women were in wards having alcohol infusions to try and stop and deliver preterm. Uh, quite a lot of them had hangovers, which I suspect didn't, didn't help them either. So if we're going to give drugs to women, it's quite a big step. It's nice to try and, if we're trying to invent new treatments, to try and work out whether they're going to be effective before we start giving them, particularly to pregnant women and their babies, because you really don't want to give something to somebody unless you think it might be effective. So we do have some ways of trying to work out whether drugs will work before we uh, give them, to, um, give them to, to pregnant women. And one of the things that we can do with, with women who are uh, happy to help us is to take a sample of the muscle tissue of the womb here when we do a cesarean section. And you can take a sample of this uh, muscle tissue of the womb um, and string it up in the lab. If, if you take it into the lab and you stretch it, muscle tissue of the womb is a smooth muscle. And uh, like the smooth muscle of the gut or the smooth muscle of blood vessels, if you stretch it, it will start to contract. So um, here's one of my colleagues here in the lab with the apparatus we use for this. And you can see she's stretched this bit of uh, smooth muscle tissue. And then you can record the contractions that you get in the, um, in the laboratory like this. And then you can add drugs and see whether the drugs stop the, the uh, smooth muscle contracting. And if they do, I guess they're likely to be effective at treating preterm labor. So one of the uh, drugs we've been interested in looking at is a drug called progesterone. Uh, now this is a hormone that we all make, men and women. Women tend to make more than men, and particularly during pregnancy, women make a lot of progesterone. And I guess that's how it got its name, pro meaning supporting and gestone meaning pregnancy. So we've been looking at the effect of uh, some progesterone in the lab, and you can see that if you have a bit of muscle tissue here that you don't treat, it just carries on contracting. But if you have a bit of muscle tissue here that you add some progesterone to, the contractions get smaller and then eventually stop. So in the lab, we've shown that progesterone is reasonably effective at stopping contractions of the womb. And what other people have shown is that you have to give this early in pregnancy before preterm labor starts. So you have to identify women who you think are at high risk of preterm birth, often because they've had a previous preterm birth, and uh, give it to them from early pregnancy. And if you do this, this is um, not our work, but work from other people, 
if you do this and you give progesterone to women who are at high risk of preterm birth, then one out of every two women who would otherwise have delivered preterm will not deliver preterm. So this sounds fantastic, doesn't it? We've obviously got the cure for preterm labor here. We should just go out and identify every woman in Edinburgh who's at high risk and give them all progesterone. But I think before we do that, we just need to ask whether preventing preterm birth is always a good thing. And I think you'll probably say, well, that's a bit silly. Of course it's a good thing. You've already told me that we know that if babies are born very preterm, they're much more likely to die. And this seems to be a very tight relationship here. So it seems pretty obvious that if you had a baby that was going to be born at 24 weeks, and you actually delay its birth till 28 weeks, that you're going to reduce its risk of death from, what, about 70% here to about, 100, uh, about 10% here. But unfortunately, that's not true. And the reason that's not necessarily true is because preterm birth is associated with some infection and inflammation in the womb. And this has been very nicely shown by um, a chap called Goldenberg in the States, who took women who were in preterm labor, but who were going to have a cesarean section. And as he did the cesarean section, he took some of the amniotic fluid from around the baby and sent it off to the laboratory to be cultured. And they looked for uh, bacteria and other microorganisms. And then he's plotted in this graph here the chance of there being some uh, microorganisms in the amniotic fluid against the stage of pregnancy the woman was at. And you can see that if she was less than 31 weeks of pregnancy, 70% of women had microorganisms in the amniotic fluid. And this goes down gradually, but even if you're in preterm labor at 36 weeks, uh, between 25 and 30% of women will have some infection in the womb. If you take normal women at term who are um, either in, in labor uh, right at the end of pregnancy or not in labor right at the end of pregnancy, almost none of them will have infection in the womb. So this, I think, tells us a little bit about what causes preterm birth. But unfortunately, this infection um, is associated with significant damage to the baby. And the, one of the organs that's very susceptible to this damage is the baby's brain. So these are MRI scans of 14-year-old um, girls. Um, this 14-year-old girl on the left um, is a healthy 14-year-old girl, and you can see uh, her brain, and it's got these sort of uh, wrinkles in here. Uh, and you can imagine if you're looking at the surface of the brain, you know how it's slightly wrinkly. You can see that here. Um, and these ventricles, these uh, are spaces here where the cerebrospinal fluid is. This scan on the right is uh, a scan of a 14-year-old girl who was born preterm and has a condition called periventricular leukomalacia. So this is a kind of brain damage that preterm babies tend to get. And you can see that it's made the uh, ventricles, the fluid spaces in her brain, uh, bigger. Uh, and it's also decreased the white matter in her brain. And this will give her uh, problems uh, typically with cerebral palsy uh, and other movement and um, understanding problems. So we have good evidence that infection in the womb that we get around the time of preterm labor causes uh, brain damage to babies. So there's a potential risk that if we prevent preterm birth but don't treat this, that we're just keeping these babies in this infected, inflamed environment for a little bit longer. We can give antibiotics, but that's not sufficient to uh, prevent all the damage. 
Fortunately, however, it seems that progesterone, which is the drug we want to use to treat preterm birth, might be the answer because there's some evidence that it reduces inflammation and there's some evidence in adults actually that it prevents brain injury. So we're hopeful that progesterone will not only prevent the contractions of the womb and prevent preterm birth, but it will prevent any um, inflammation or infection-induced brain damage uh, in the baby as well. But if I was talking to you and you were a patient, you'd want to be pretty sure about that before, again, we started treating every pregnant woman. So we need to try and work out whether progesterone is a good thing for pregnant women and their babies at high risk of preterm birth or not before we start giving it to everybody. And one of the ways that we do that is by doing a, a clinical trial. So I'm just going to go briefly through the uh, uh, principles of clinical trials. And one of the important principles is that you need to have the active treatment or progesterone and compare it to a dummy treatment. Um, and the reason for that is we do lots and lots of things to pregnant women, particularly when uh, we've got them in, in studies. We look after them very carefully and we phone them up uh, very frequently to make sure they're all right. And we need to make sure whether the um, benefits that they receive are related to the active progesterone or whether it's just because we're phoning them up and making sure, that, sure they're all right. So we have to compare the active treatment to a placebo or a, a dummy treatment. We have to make sure that neither the woman nor the doctor can choose which they have because otherwise you're tempted, if you think the treatment is going to work, to give it to people you think will do well. Or if, you think, if you're particularly worried about somebody, you might give her that particular treatment. And similarly, we need to make sure that neither the patient nor the doctor knows which treatment they're on. Because if I gave you a glass of fizzy stuff and I said, this is Moe and Chandon, you'd probably like it much more than if I gave you a glass of fizzy stuff and said, this is Supermarket Carver at £1.99. So we tend to um, perceive what we think we're seeing. So it's important that if you're studying the effect of an intervention, that you uh, don't let either the woman or the doctor know what they're getting. And then lastly, clearly, this is quite a serious thing to give people treatment when you're not absolutely sure that it's going to work. So there's an, uh, a lot of very important regulation uh, around this, and I know that um, some of you who help us with this are in the audience today. So we have ethics committees who look through the uh, plan for the study, make sure it's reasonable, make sure that women are fully informed about the study, and make sure the study is being uh, conducted appropriately. But we think we've passed, well, we have passed all these tests with the study we're doing, uh, which we're calling Optimum, which is funded by the MRC. And this, we hope, will answer this big question about whether progesterone is actually a good thing for babies. So it's a UK-wide trial. In fact, we've, we've got more than 30 centres involved now. And we're giving 375 women who are at high risk some progesterone, giving another 375 women a placebo tablet. And we're following the babies of these women up till the age of two, because by that time, we'll be able to tell how the baby's developing whether it's passing all its milestones correctly. And we'll be able to tell if the progesterone in preventing preterm birth has actually made these uh, babies healthier or not. This work will take some time, and we're hoping the results will be available uh, by 2014. But as you can imagine, it's a big undertaking, and there's lots of people around the UK uh, helping with this. So we've talked a little bit about preterm birth and the possibility of preventing preterm birth. And I'm just going to move slightly now to talk about what else we can try and do to prevent the harmful effects of preterm birth. 
So what we can do is try and make some of the critical organs more mature. As I said, one of the problems with prematurity is that the baby's, lung, baby's organs are not fully developed. And maybe we can just try and accelerate development in the womb in the uh, few hours or days before the baby's delivered preterm. One of the most critical organs is uh, the lung. And this uh, um, x-ray on the right-hand show, side shows uh, the lungs of a healthy baby. And you can see they're uh, full of air here. Um, with the uh, air sacs in the lungs being fully dilated. And if you looked uh, at the lung and the microscope, it doesn't look a very impressive organ, but I guess this is what's keeping us all alive. Uh, so these little bits of tissue here with, with lots of air inside. If you look at the lung of a baby that's born preterm, particularly one with a lung condition called respiratory distress syndrome, you can see that these lungs are much more collapsed. And instead of having air in, they've got uh, very little air, and they've got quite a lot of inflammation. So what is it about healthy lungs? What is it about our lungs that are keeping them open as we breathe compared to this uh, poor baby's lungs here, who, uh, which are really struggling to, to stay open? Uh, and what's uh, keeping all of our lungs here is uh, a reduction in surface uh, tension. So you all know about surface tension. Surface tension is the thing that uh, washing up liquid affects. And if you put washing up liquid into, um, uh, into your washing up, I guess uh, it reduces the surface tension and allows bubbles to form. So all of us make our own form of washing up liquid in the lungs, which is called surfactant. And this allows to, our lungs to stay open uh, even when we breathe out. But the lungs of preterm babies don't make very much surfactant. When preterm babies have been born, pediatricians can squirt some surfactant down their lungs, and that works reasonably well. But before the babies uh, are born, it would be nice if we could increase the baby's own surfactant development. So this just shows you the effect of surfactant here. So this is air sacs in the preterm baby's lungs, which are uh, collapsed, and shows that if you add surfactant here, that it allows the surface tension in the lung to be reduced and the uh, um, air sacs to open up. So it would be nice if we could increase surfactant uh, production in the womb. And in fact, now we can. And it's thanks to some studies in, in sheep. Um, and I think this is a, a nice story. And, and what it shows is that when you're doing research, you don't always find what you're looking for, but you find something else more important sometimes. And it also shows that although I think all of us in this room would want to um, reduce and stop animal experiments if possible, that often they uh, result in, in findings which are really important for human health. And I think this is a good example here. So these experiments were done by a chap called Mont Liggins from New Zealand, who in fact died um, earlier this year. And he was trying to understand what caused birth to start in sheep. And he thought that uh, steroids uh, might be the thing that triggered um, birth in sheep. And I think when you say steroids, some of us think about bodybuilders, not too often. Um, some <laughs> who take steroids and um, uh, do themselves harm largely. But in fact, the sort of steroids that he was interested in were not these bodybuilding steroids, but the sort of stress steroids that our body makes uh, when we're stressed and allows us to to uh, respond appropriately to stress. So he was giving some steroids to uh, pregnant sheep to see if they would deliver early. And he thought that if they did, it would show that steroids were responsible for starting labor. 
So he did give these pregnant steroids, uh, some pregnant sheep some steroids, and yes, they did deliver early. But what he found was in, when these very tiny preterm baby sheep were born, actually they were able to breathe pretty well. So the steroids had not only triggered preterm birth, but it had also uh, enabled the baby to, to breathe effectively. Now we can give steroids artificially to women using a drug called betamethasone, and he had the idea that it might be sensible to do this in women who were going to deliver preterm. So he started some human studies and, and other people have carried them on. And I don't know whether you can see this here, but um, these are the, this is the risk of respiratory distress syndrome, which is this breathing problem that babies in the betamethasone treated group had. And this is the risk or the uh, proportion of babies in the group who didn't have betamethasone who had breathing difficulties. And you can see a huge difference here. And for the statisticians amongst you, these differences are highly statistically significant. So what he showed that uh, was that over half of the deaths of babies born preterm could be prevented by steroids. And in fact, in the UK now, the deaths of 3,000 babies are prevented each year because these uh, studies here have translated into clinical practice. And we treat pregnant women who are going to deliver early with steroids and have a significant beneficial effect on the baby's lungs. So I'm just going to now talk a little bit about drug development. And some of you may have noticed that many of the drugs I've been talking about, progesterone, steroids, and in fact the drugs treat, used to treat heart disease, which some places in the UK still use to treat preterm labor, were either discovered by accident or they were invented to treat other conditions outside pregnancy. And unfortunately, with the um, exception of um, things used to cause uh, miscarriage, there have only been three new drugs developed to treat pregnancy complications over the last 20 years in the UK and worldwide. And only one out of the three of these drugs is used to treat women before they deliver. Uh, and the reason for that is because the pharmaceutical companies tend not to be particularly interested in developing drugs for pregnancy conditions. And this is partly because of the, um, the uh, funding model they work to. Um, pregnancy doesn't last for very long, so if you develop a fantastic drug, you're not going to have people on it for very long. Um, and there are significant risks if you get it wrong because the baby is going to be, have a, a, a long life, and so any damage that you cause the baby is going to be very expensive. So despite maternal and um, condition, conditions and conditions in the first year of life being the single biggest contributor to disability around the world, uh, the, um, the pharmaceutical, companies not particularly, pharmaceutical companies are not particularly interested in investing in this area. And this is a nice paper which shows this. And just to illustrate it, they looked at drugs that were in development by pharmaceutical companies for uh, obstetric conditions, so pregnancy conditions. So you can see 17 drugs in development at the moment worldwide for any condition related to pregnancy. Compared to heart disease, uh, where 660 drugs are in development for heart disease conditions. And they also compared it to amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a serious disease, but it's a rare disease affecting only around two in every 100,000 people. And even for this very rare disease, you can see 34 drugs currently in development compared to the 17 for all the pregnancy conditions. So I think that's why it's, it's really important that uh, we have funding for research from the uh, UK government. The MRC is very kindly funding um, our clinical trial and also from charities such as Tommy's. And um, 
as Professor Seckel told you earlier, Tommy's has set up the uh, a research uh, unit into maternal and uh, fetal conditions in, in Edinburgh, and I think it's with, with their help that hopefully we're going to be able to tackle some of these important problems. When Tommy's did set up our unit, one of the things they wanted us to look at was maternal obesity. And initially I thought that was a bit of a strange thing for us to want to focus on because I think most of us think of obesity as a cosmetic issue. Um, and if you're Rubens, it's a desirable uh, cosmetic attribute. Uh, if you're trying to get your trousers on in the morning and have been eating uh, too much over the last few weeks, it's not a desirable uh, cosmetic attribute. But in fact, Tommy's were absolutely right asking us to look at uh, the problems faced by maternal obesity because it's increasingly clear that being obese and being pregnant uh, is a major risk factor for complications. So it's not good for the baby. It increases the risk of miscarriage, increases the risk of abnormality of the baby, it increases the risk of stillbirth uh, by five times uh, that uh, of non-obese women. And it's not good for the mum either. It increases all the minor complications of pregnancy, which are not very minor if you're getting them, such as backache and uh, joint pain, etc. Increases the risk of diabetes, increases the risk of thrombosis. Um, it increases the risk of cesarean section. And as you may know, the risk of cesarean section is increasing in the UK, and it may at least be in part be driven by maternal obesity. And lastly, it's responsible for probably about a third of maternal deaths. So obesity in pregnancy is a, a significant problem for mums and babies. And the problems don't end at the time of birth for babies. So this uh, baby here is, uh, I guess, a, an average or a perfect size baby. We know that obese pregnant women are more likely to have both a very small baby here and a very big baby here. And both of these babies, are at increased risk of having problems in later life, such as heart disease, uh, diabetes, um, and obesity themselves. So this is the cover of Time magazine, in fact, from a couple of weeks ago, and their headline, which is absolutely right, is that the first nine months uh, of your life shapes the rest of it. And if you get, get things right for the baby uh, inside the mum's womb and get things right for the baby at the time of birth, then it's likely to be set for a healthy life. If you get things wrong, if you uh, get babies that are too big or too small, which obesity increases the risk of, uh, then these babies are going to be at increased risk of a variety of things in later life. At the moment, we don't understand what it is about obesity that causes problems, but we've set up a clinic for uh, obese uh, pregnant women with my colleagues here. We're now seeing four or five new pregnant women each uh, week, and we're trying to uh, make uh, pregnancy as healthy as we can for these women from what we currently know about diet and exercise and managing women during pregnancy. But with their help, we're trying to understand what it is about obesity that causes pregnancy problems so that in future, when obese uh, pregnant women come to us, as they will do in increasing amounts over the next few years, we know exactly what sort of drugs to treat them with and exactly when to treat them so that they and their babies are much healthier. I'm going to just return now to Conan Doyle and his, um, uh, his um, hero, Sherlock Holmes, who, when faced with a particularly difficult problem, described it as quite a th three-pipe problem, I guess meaning it took him three pipes to solve it, uh, and asked that Watson wouldn't speak to him for 50 minutes while he thought about it. 
Um, I think that the problems of preterm birth and obesity and pregnancy and all the other problems we're faced with are probably even more than three-pipe problems, uh, but hopefully over the next few years uh, we'll be able to, to begin to address them. I think Edinburgh is a really fantastic place to, to do research into um, pregnancy problems, and it's fantastic for me personally to be here. I work in this building here called the Queen's Medical Research Institute, um, and I work on the ground floor, and there are people in all sorts of other disciplines on all the other floors. And although their main focus isn't on pregnancy, they have lots of skills um, and knowledge that are very useful to apply to pregnancy. And it's in talking to them, I'm hoping we get, begin to sort some of these problems out. I'm just going to show you a couple of examples. One of the really um, cool things I think we have is we've got some great uh, imaging equipment on the uh, ground floor of the building. Now, pregnant women are not, uh, it's not safe to put pregnant women in, in all types of scanners, but one of the types of scanners it is safe to put them in for both them and their baby is an MR scanner. Most MR scanners in the UK are 1.5 Tesla. Um, ours is at 3 Tesla, which is much more powerful. It uh, means that we can actually see the anatomy of the baby very clearly. We can, uh, with, with help from the, the scanning colleagues, we can do things like measure oxygen levels in the baby's placenta and look at fat levels in the baby's liver. So we've been, one of the, we've been the first group in the UK to scan pregnant women with a 3T MRI scanner, and I think this is going to be really exciting in the future. We're also talking to people who uh, you, know, you might not expect us to talk to, and one of the groups of people we're talking to is the mathematicians, and they're hard going, but they're very clever chaps, and, <laughs> and what they can do is they can take lots of information and put it into a computer and come up with a computerized model. So one of the problems in thinking about labor is, as I said to you earlier, there's so many bits of information, things going up and down and all interacting that, um, well, certainly too big for my small brain to cope. But if you put it all into a computerized model, what we could potentially do is have a computerized model of labor. So we could add drugs into the computerized model and see what effect they would have again before we uh, treat pregnant women. So I think all of these opportunities mean that uh, we have a real a chance of actually making pregnancy safer for women. I'm going to come to the end now, and before I stop, I'd just like to thank all my collaborators and colleagues for helping with this work, and, and none of it would be possible without them. I'd like to thank the uh, funding bodies who funded uh, the work and are continuing to fund it, the MRC, Medical Research Council, Jennifer Brown uh, Research Fund, and lastly but not least, Tommy's, who, who put a very considerable amount of funding into the centre to help us improve things. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope that uh, together we can, in the future, make all pregnancies happy, healthy, and safe, like this one here. Thank you. Well, Jane, thank you very much for that fantastic talk. What a tour de force. I think before I offer a vote of thanks, um, it's about five minutes for questions, if there are any in the audience. Don't be shy. Hello. Um, you showed a nice slide with the um, relative percentages across the globe and how preterm labour is rising and how it's quite high, especially in the States, which was yeah. quite surprising. Have you any idea why that is? Um, I, I think one of the things that they think 
that causes high rates of preterm birth in the States. You may have seen it was also high in Africa, and, and it's particularly high in African-Americans in the States. So that there is some evidence that there's some genetic element in preterm birth, not in all preterm birth, but some preterm birth. And um, it may be in the States that it's part of the ethnic mix that uh, increases their preterm birth rates. You made um, a couple of references to alcohol as a treatment and sort of a casual reference to how it used to be used to prevent yeah. premature delivery and the effect was a hangover. But it also seems a, a good opportunity, if you would, to, to mention the very real problem of fetal alcohol harm. Absolutely. Um, which is not inconsequential in Scotland. I think that's absolutely right, and um, you forgive me if I was a little bit flippant about um, using alcohol to treat preterm birth, and I think it's, it just shows doctors' desperation in that, you know, they used a drug that they knew would potentially be harmful, but they were in a desperate situation trying to use it to treat this. But you're right, alcohol is, is not good for babies, and, and that's one of the challenges, I guess, in, in designing drugs to, to treat pregnant women, that we need to be absolutely careful that what we're doing is good and not harmful. And the only way you know that is by following the babies up till after they're born and you know, stopping saying this baby's preterm, this baby's not preterm is, is not sufficient. It has been said that there's a number of chemicals that our modern industrial society is releasing into the environment that um, may mimic estrogen and estrogenic kind of chemicals or may have other kinds of effects on human hormones and you would expect those to be more prevalent in more industrial societies. Have people been studying whether that's related to the prevalence of preterm births? Um, not hitherto, but it, people are starting to be interested in that. So they're starting to look at uh, environmental pollutants, particularly in the placenta of um, babies born at term and preterm. And, and I think you're right, knowing what we know about the change in um, frequency of preterm births, an environmental pollutant has to be up there on the list, but no obvious ones have, have come to the fore yet. Um, you showed a slide that has an, a cognitive assessment. I just wondered what age that was carried out and what type of cognitive assessment was used. So you can't really do anything before the baby's two. There are the sort of scoring systems at the, at the age of two for babies uh, called a Bailey score, uh, which is what we're going to use in our study to, to look at uh, babies. Uh, growth, but then as, as you're probably aware, as you go on in life, you can do more subtle cognitive assessments. And they've followed preterm babies up now till 11 and, and 16, and they're still seeing differences in babies uh, even born marginally preterm compared to babies born at term. These differences become much more apparent later on in life. Um, I've got a question um, regarding your research that you're doing. Um, you say that 375 women are being given a placebo and that their babies are being monitored until the age of two when obviously they'll be assessed using yeah. this cognitive assessment. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned that these women were women who are at risk of preterm labour. Yeah. So what happens if these placebo women, you know, a proportion of them may well not go into preterm labour? Are these babies still being monitored and what, would the, you know, yes. what does that effect have on your research? So we're, we're following up um, all the babies of women in the study, if, if women agree, um, and seeing how they are at two. And that's whether they're born preterm or whether they're born at, at term. And I guess one of our 
slight anxieties about progesterone if it works brilliantly in stopping preterm birth but doesn't prevent this brain damage that you might get a baby that is actually born at the right time but might not do any better than it would have done had it been born early so yes we are following up all the babies to the age of two what we'd actually like to do is, is follow them longer than that but um, we need to get permission and funding to do that I mean, I think this is important research to do, and I think it's, it's pretty important to know what the long-term effect of this drug is before we, we start giving it to people. Thank you very much. I think we've come to the end of our allotted time, but there will be an opportunity to ask Professor Norman questions afterwards during the, uh, the, the, the tea break, uh, which, which comes after this. So, it really now falls to me to offer a few uh, words of, of thanks. I think it's kind of fantastic tonight. I think the scale of the audience and the detailed and thoughtful questions that we've had really illustrates the parallels, the excitement of the talk that we've listened to. We've listened to a medical scientist in the modern mould telling you how she approaches a major unmet medical need. You've seen that this is a global problem, and if anything, it's getting worse, including in our society. That there's no really good treatment. You've heard how we try to get into the science to understand what is going on, to try and think of rational ways to approach the problem. But Professor Norman is a medical scientist. She doesn't just want to understand what's going on. She wants to be able to treat her patients. And so you've heard how the logical end point of that is to do a randomised clinical trial of the treatment that she thinks might work. To be sure, not to have anecdote, but to have proof that it works or it doesn't work. You're never sure until you've done that trial, but that's what she does. She takes her understanding at the bench and takes it back into the patients to try and solve an unmet need. And I thought you heard a fantastic tale of how that works. It's no surprise that she's a an advisor not only to the UK government, if they listen, <laughs> but also to the World Health Organization. So I'd like to, on behalf of all of us, thank Jane Norman again for a most interesting and illuminating lecture, and also invite you down afterwards for um, some of the university's largesse, including, I'm absolutely sure, some £1.99 cards. <laughs> thank you again, Jane. This production is copyright.